So we'll be in Luke chapter 12. Um, now, the chapter divides weren't in the original Bible or in the original text. They're not inspired. Um, you know, it's not like when, uh, when they're pinning the scripture, they go, okay, we're going to put verse 12 here and verse this. This was all uh, put in there so you guys can figure out where you're at. Um, just as much, you know, the chapter divides and all that are, are just as inspired as the, you, you people that have the tabs to cheat to what book it is. They're about the same level of inspiration. And so very much this kind of continues last week. If you remember last week, Jesus is invited to a dinner party, and he's at a Pharisee's house, and it was really bad for the dinner party because Jesus starts just calling them out on being a hypocrite, putting on a show. These men that were the Pharisees and, and the law, um, those who studied the law, the the if you would, the legalists to the point where they studied the law to the 10th degree and made all these other laws, Jesus just straight out calls them out because they had a lack of a heart. They did not have a relationship. There wasn't a real love for the Lord. They had a love for the laws, but not that relationship with God. And it was more based on their own works and their own performance and their concern was not God and what God desired, but what man saw of them and what man thought of them. And so, verse 1, it says, In the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people gathered together so that they trampled one another, he began to say to his disciples, First of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So the dinner party is going on. Jesus calls them out. And then the scribes are like, hey, you know, you put us in that lost comment. So Jesus calls the scribes out too. And now this is making a commotion. Could you imagine in the middle of like an award ceremony, like, the, like you're talking about the red carpet and here Jesus just walks by the side of the red carpet by not wa- washing his hand, hands. And then he goes into the, the, the ceremony, and he walks up on stage and grabs a mic and starts telling everybody how they're actors, because that's what the award shows generally are, a whole bunch of actors. So he's there, and he's, he's going over these things, and, and so now, you know, it was an award show, maybe, you know, like much probably the ones today, I don't watch the award shows, so, um, but I do hear that they're getting watched less and less. So now, all the, everybody's interested, because this thing's blowing up into something, right? Because at the end of chapter 11, we have the Pharisees and stuff not repenting, not going, oh, we need a change. But now they're, they're at a war of words with Jesus. They're looking to find something. At that point, they want to just not trap him. They want to trap him in something and put him on the cross. They want to be done with this guy, right? They're, they're trying to come up with a way to destroy him. And, and so all these accusations are going back. And, and it says they couldn't get Jesus to slip up. So Jesus must have been answering them. And, and so... Now there's a crowd coming, and it's like, I can't, um, it's like, you know, junior high or something, fight, and everybody's running and trampling each other to go see, you know, this fight. It's like, you know, now we don't have to go anywhere. Everybody just probably turns on their phone, right, in the school. Have you ever thought about that? Like my generation, you had to actually run to go see the fight. Now you just find whoever's streaming it, right? I'm just a different thought. But, you know, but they're trampling people. I mean, I don't know if you guys, I've never been in a crowd where people are actually getting trampled. That's rough. I mean, it just, so you have the scene, right? And then Jesus begins to say to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, these are his disciples, and he's warning them of being a hypocrite just as much as the Pharisees. Wait a minute, but these are his disciples, right? I mean, and and so it's like, this thing isn't just dangerous because you see it, but it's a danger to us as believers. It's a danger to the church. And, and generally, you, you see this, and it creeps into the church. You'll see a movement begin and everything else, and then it ends up a list of rules and a list of things, and, and that ministry ends up dying, and it changes and goes away. You can see it all throughout church history. Great movements where God used a man, and that man, man ended up becoming a movement of men with a heart to seek God back to the gospel, back to the, the truth of the gospel. And then, it, and then it changes to where that ministry grows into something, and, and they want to make it a machine. 
Now, now it's got to be formatted. We've got to put this movement in, into a machine to where you, the do's and don'ts, all the rules come out for that ministry. And then it goes from that to a monument. You'll have the buildings left behind of this great movement. You look at, at all over Europe, there are huge churches left. Martin Luther and these men that were used, now this ministry becomes a monument. And that's always been a concern and a danger, if you would, of every ministry. And even Chuck mentioned it. He goes, hey, you know, Calvary chapels, we're non-denominational. You know, we said we're the biggest non-denominational denomination. And what it is, is it's really based on relationship. There isn't anybody... um, The responsibility of this fellowship relies on the board of this fellowship... Besides that, it relies on men that I have a relationship that can call me out, but they have no legal responsibility. Now, I am affiliated, so if we start teaching something that's unbiblical, somebody's going to go rat on me to Lewis Neely right now, who's over it, and I'm going to come down and go, what are you doing? You know, but, and uh, Pat, that's what his job used to be, actually, for a while at, at Calvary Chapel uh, Modesto, was to go in and when there was maybe something off, come in and see it. But there's a lot of freedom. The order of service, how we do things. We are to be reliant and directed by the Holy Spirit, not on a list of rules. And that's the, you know, was, the biggest thing is, okay, so God used a man, and probably more that man's wife, if you really look into Chuck and Kay's story, who had a heart for these hippies, Right. And you see how God uses it. It becomes a movement. And now there starts to become a fear of, oh, no, what's going to happen? You know, Chuck's passed away, and now we got this and this. And, I mean, not so much up here. Sometimes down in SoCal you always hear, oh, Chuck said, Chuck said this, and Chuck said this. He'd be the first one to correct you, you know. Now he's not there to correct these guys. You know, like, why you ever, it doesn't matter how I did it. What is God telling you to do, you know? As long as it's biblical and the bases are there. And so... It's interesting to see as, as people start to get confu- concerned. Well, what if we do this or what if that? And, and uh, it's a danger to slip into that. You know, I, I look at certain things and even within the movement, the kind of different things. And um, when Chuck left, he, he didn't even point a, a pastor to succeed him. He left that up to the church board to pray and seek the Holy Spirit. There wasn't a, oh, this is a person leading Calvary Chapel. This isn't even the person leading, leading Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. I'm not pointing. You guys, you godly men, seek the board, pray about who's supposed to be in this position. You know? And it, it's interesting. I, I kind of get a check. You know, Chuck always joked about, man, if anybody ever puts up a statue, I'm coming back. I'm going to deal with them. You know, the warning. Don't, don't start putting up statues. And that's very much... We pray as a ministry, we stay in there. The name of Calvary Chapel doesn't matter. There's not a, a copy. We don't care about any of that. The ultimate thing is, you know, in our area, it's these relationships I have with other like-minded pastors that have a solid base in the Scripture and have a, the same kind of calling for Scripture and teach it. And that's where our base is, and that's what we rely on. But there is a danger of falling into this hypocrisy, and it's like leaven. And I, I know there's some of you ladies in here that still make bread, and you put leaven in, or yeast into the bread, and you put a little in, and it rises. It goes through the whole loaf, you know what I mean? It, leaven kind of scares me when you, when you think of yeast, and it's alive. It's kind of, you know, I don't know. You look it up close, it looks like a virus thing or something. But it sure makes bread taste good. I like, I, I liked fluffy bread, which I can't have anymore, you know? But my mom used to do it, and you knead it, you know, and you let it rise, and, and, and it, it's a danger, and it, a little is going to leaven the whole loaf, is what it says, and so it's something we should really guard against, and, and kind of in our nature, it happens when somebody comes in the church, and there's this false thing in there, and people put them up on a pedestal, people mimic that, people want to follow that, that, you know, people like to be put up and thought of better than they really are, instead of the truth of going, hey, we're sinners saved by God's grace. And it doesn't matter what position you're in the church, you're just as much as a sinner as everybody else. There's nobody in here that needed the blood of Christ any, any more or any less than anybody else. And there's nobody that somehow got to a point of achieving anything greater. You know, you sit down and, and uh, if anything, sometimes I'm challenged by some of the new believers and they come up and they just have such a fresh look at God and I've complicated things so much. You know, I, I can't keep remembering, I think it was Zach just sitting in my truck, and he's like, dude, 
See that tree? Yeah. God made it. You know, just all excited. <laughs> like, just the reality of walking in that and, and just sitting there going, man, I wish I just had that joy for the basic things. I'm sitting here stressing out all about this, and he's just, wow, there's a tree God made. And I was like, yeah, there's a hundred tree in the city you maintain, you know, whoever planted it, now, whatever. You know, it just, we can get so numb to those things and get so list on, I have to do A, B, and C to where we miss that relationship. And so it can go through and it can leaven the whole loaf. And so we got to be aware of this. And he continues kind of this direction and warning to the disciples and those who are with him. And it says in verse 2, it says, For there is nothing covered that will be or there is nothing covered that will, will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light. And whatever you have spoken in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the housetops. Now, when you, when you think of that and you slow down and you go, okay, so there's, there's nothing. There's nothing. In time, somebody's heart, their actions get revealed. So many times we like to judge something based on, oh, look at this at this point. This person's great. And I've made that mistake of, of looking at somebody and going, wow, God, why isn't it this way, this way? And then you give it time and you see the result of those things or, or the fruit of those things. And, and even more, in heaven, definitely, it's going to be revealed. There's nothing that you do in darkness that doesn't get revealed in time. Some of it gets revealed just because if your heart's that direction, it's going to show up at a point. Other times, it gets revealed because of God's grace, right? It's like, I don't know how many times God just straight out ratted me out. You try to do something, get away with it, and it's like, do you realize that was straight out God thing that anybody could have found out about that? And so God so it brought to light and dealt with it. Why? Because he loves us. And number two, he knows. He's right there. Um, you think of uh, well, there's a TV show or a movie called The Truman Show, you know, where this guy's whole life is videoed. And you think, wow, how would your actions change if you knew you had a camera on you 24 hours a day? Would that freak you out a little? Would it freak out? What I've learned, though, is nowadays that's actually more and more possible. You ever drive by Home Depot and your phone suddenly goes boop and you get an email, Home Depot coupon. And you find out they're actually listening to you through most of these apps, to key words, to certain things. Oh, and everything you're searching, they're recording. You know, so if you start getting um, certain ads, where have you been? Right? You can always tell what you, you know, it's real easy to see when things start popping up on your phone, you know. Men's Retreat was weekend. There's a, an app we use, um, uh, uh, um, keep you accountable, called Covenant Eyes for your device. I go somewhere I shouldn't, Heidi gets notified, a couple other people get emails, boom, boom. My kids go somewhere, it sends off a notification where it goes. Plus, it does have a restrictive search engine if you need it. I'm sure there's a way around it, but I'm not going to admit that because I don't want to go looking for it. So it's unbreakable, it's impenetrable, just trust me on that. I'll leave that there. But you sit there and so there are things, but they are recording everything. Isn't that a scary thought? They're recording everything online. Now, if you become a politician, I'm sure somebody's going to have a button to pull up your file. And we all like to think there's no way they can store that much stuff, but I'm sure they are. You know, and, and you know certain things. I, I really want to know, though, it's like, I'm trying to figure out what I've been searching. Because there was like a time four years ago, and me and Heidi both, suddenly we started getting scooter store ads. And ads for like hair loss and things like that. It's like... Did you know we were getting a 40 or what? I mean, <laughs> that's how you know you're old. When, when whatever search engine you're using or whatever you search is old stuff. They're like, okay, you still have Facebook. You don't use Twitter. Obviously, you need a scooter to ride around on. I mean, something. <laughs> you know, how do they, you know, maybe a little early or premature. Maybe they just know what I buy. You, know, you go to the grocery store, right, and you got the little thing you enter your phone number in. They're tracking. They want your phone number so they can track what you buy. Maybe they're talking to that and go, look, this guy's not going to be walking long. Look what he keeps buying. I don't know. You know, somehow, somehow the scooter stores got me down and a couple other uh, older age medical device companies, you know. But you look at those things, it makes you wonder. But, you know, you look at it and we are being more watched. But even then, everything is going to be revealed. And um, when, you, when you think about that, it kind of makes you uneasy. Right? It's like, have you ever did something, had a party, your parents are gone, they're coming back and you're hiding it? 
that uneasy feeling like, oh no, they're gonna find out. Hope, hope they don't notice the glue dripping off the vase or whatever is broken or undone or you know, hopefully they don't dig through the trash to find out you had a party or whatever had happened. We were never that good. It's hard to get rid of dents in cars. But that wasn't all my fault. So that actually was none of my fault. I was too young. But um, I just kind of watched my siblings do it. But so there's, there's things, you know, yeah. Our house, right, like couples retreats were dangerous for the children to leave them behind. So parents on couples retreat. But, you know, you look at those things and that feeling that comes, right, and you sit there when you realize God knows what's going on. He knows all the things going on in your mind, not even just your actions, but your heart. You can even do something that you're thinking, wow, people really like me. And God knows your heart. God knows the motives of your heart. And it's interesting. It's kind of scary at first. The only comforting thing I know, though, when I look at this was, remember the, the disciples? How many times in the Bible are they sitting there and they're having an argument or not even a verbal argument? They're thinking stuff, and Jesus corrects them lovingly. But yet they were still willing to make the mistake because God is so loving on the other aspect of it, right? So it's like, you know, if Jesus was walking around with you, what would you do? You would be just like the disciples and still stupid. I mean, you'd say dumb things. Why? Because he's so loving in the balance. But he is, and to really slow down and go, you know, you, if you have this fear of man and you're going to put on this face or, you know, put on this mask so people view you certainly, God sees you all the time. You should be less worried about men and more worried about God. And in verse 4 it says, And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after have no more that they can do. I don't, you know, at, at, at first it's pretty easy to read that, right? Okay, don't, don't worry about those who kill the body, right? Okay, we're not supposed to. I don't know, but that's scary. I mean, we're talking death here. They can hurt my body and not kill it. It, it could get pretty bad. And I, I shouldn't worry about those who can kill my body. And he says, dear friends, don't worry about it. Knowing what the disciples are going to be going through, all but one was martyred. And you think, man, dude, don't worry about your body. And it's one of those things, you know, don't worry about those who can just take out your body. Now, in a situation, there, there are many times, you know, there's a lot of people we don't worry about, right? But if you come across somebody who's bigger, right? If you're walking down the alleyway and some guy who's seven foot four and ripped comes up to you and nudges you as he walks by, you're going to go, hey, bro, what are you doing? No. Now, if it's a junior higher, you're going to be like, hey, what are you doing, little kid, you know? Right? You don't fear him, but fear, don't fear those who have the power. I mean, even just the power of that. And you go, well, do we really fear man? Does a real fear of man ever come into my life? Is there a time when you're at work and they're there and there's a pressure to talk a certain way, be a certain way, joke around a certain way? Why do you do it? Well, I want to be accepted. I want to be okay. I, I don't want to stand out. I don't want to even sometimes get fired, right? There's been, I know there's been a job I didn't get because I, just, I didn't drink and I didn't do what they did and that just wasn't going to happen. It was just, you know, they thought I was an alien or something. I mean, it just, we did not get along. And that was the whole thing. I, I realized that this company, it was not how hard you worked. It was how much they liked you. Because, you know, when you get these huge, big union companies and stuff, it was never about how much work they got done. They got done enough so that the main office was happy. But besides that, it was what could you do and what who did you have to put up with was more important to them. I was young. I was... I still had to learn that, you know, and I realized, wow, it's nothing to do with how hard I got out there and worked. They don't, it doesn't matter, you know, it's if they're going to like you or not, and they're just not going to like me. I'm just not part of that. And so we can have a real fear of man and man's point of view, but we should slow down and look at this. We are so focused on this life. James 14.4 says, what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a short, little time and then vanishes, a vapor. So you ever been out on a cold morning, you breathe out and you see that vapor? That's our whole life. And how much even shorter compared to eternity, right? It's here and gone, and we put so much weight into what people think of us. And even this, um, if, if you would, this spacesuit. Your body is a spacesuit. It's here to house you to get you through this environment. And we put a lot of work into our spacesuit. 
you know, fix your spacesuit, repair your spacesuit, paint your spacesuit, you know, shrink your spacesuit. <laughs> you know, and we get so worried about what people think and appearances. And, you know, when you look at, it's amazing, you know, especially our culture when you have an abundance, right? I always get a kick out of, you know, you look at other countries, you know, and when you call somebody fat in another country, it's a compliment. You know, you get to the third world, you're fat. You know, if we want to, that's awesome. We want to know where you got the food. We want some. Here, it's just the opposite. You're fat. I'm like, what? You know? And if somebody loses weight, you want to know how they did it. Where did it come from? What's, the, what's your diet pill, you know? Everybody goes, wow, you look so, you know, and they're, it's kind of funny because people are like, and it's somebody yesterday, we're out in front of the post office, and she can't. Tim? I said, yeah. She goes, wow, you look different. I said, yeah, I lost a lot of weight. She goes, I, well, I didn't want to say that. Yeah, I lost a lot of weight. Well, how'd you do it? I've been trying to lose weight. Well, it's called diabetes. You can't eat anything you want. I mean, it's a great diet, you know. I've seen some other diets really work out there, you know. Pneumonia, <laughs> cancer. There's a lot of horrible. You don't want to do it this way, you know. Maybe you know, write a book, Element Diets. Yeah, I tell you, sometimes you sit there, you know, and so, but they want to know, how did you get skinny? Totally opposite in the other country, you know, if you showed up skinnier, they wouldn't want to know, and like, wait, maybe they would, I don't want to go where you were, where'd you come from, you know? But our life, it's short, and, and the amazing thing is, though, if, if you have a little person who's unthreatening come up to you, right, and threaten your life, you're like, whatever, you're, I can beat you, I can take you, I'm not worried about my life. What puts that in perspective is when somebody bigger comes along, Right? If, if there's a little guy there and he's threatening, you're like, okay, don't worry about that. But if a big guy comes along, you're going to worry about that. Well, let's look at verse 5. But, I'll sh- but I will show you whom you should fear. Fear whom, him who after he has killed has the power to cast you into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Ooh. Right? You're worried about men and men's opinion. I'd be a lot less worried about them and worried about the people or God who can send you to hell and the power to cast you into hell. And it's interesting, the word, you know, the, the fear of the Lord. You know, if we go to Proverbs in 9, Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And you think of fearing God, right? So, you know, this is kind of, gets uncomfortable going, okay, now God knows everything. He's everything's going to be revealed and you should fear him, right? It is scary, but the reason is just as much as your parents coming back home and catching you do something you shouldn't, there's a fear. There's a fear why? Because they don't like you and they're going to be mean? No, because they love you and there's going to be correction if you did something wrong. Now, if you didn't do anything wrong while they're gone, is there any fear? No. We should fear the Lord because he's a loving God. He's going to be faithful to discipline us. And he's the biggest guy on the block. Eternity is a lot longer than how long we're going to last here. And you think about, think about the men that actually needed to hear this who were sitting here. Think of the disciples. Think of Peter. Right? Peter's sitting there and fearing men, he gets arrested, he gets thrown in jail, right? And he's there, and he is so stressed out, which this even applies later, you know, because we're going to get to it, you know, you know, when you get arrested in my name or for me, you know, don't worry, the Holy Spirit's going to give you what to say, right? So the day he, he gets arrested, he gets thrown in jail, he's possibly be killed and all that's put to death. And where did we find Peter? Where was he? Oh, yeah, that's right. He was sleeping, and sleeping so deep that when an angel came and freed him, got him outside, and he's down the street, you know, he's out and out of the prison and sitting there, he's still waking up going, hey, wait a minute, this ain't a dream. What am I doing here? That's sleeping pretty deep. I don't know about you guys. If I was in jail for anything since I've never been, I wouldn't be sleeping very deep. The beds aren't comfortable, I don't think. Don't want to find out. I mean, I'm just not going to be that asleep where it's going to, like, I can't even wake you up, especially an angel can't get you awake, you know, drag you outside and you're standing there, and you're barefoot looking around going, what the heck, where am I at? You know, it, it's amazing to see to where, no, the, the, their eternity, their life and what they viewed of their life was so temporal, right? So temporal. 
They had such a, a, a different perspective. And so it's interesting to see, though, because you, got, you, you think of these guys and go, wow, the amount of faith they had to have and all this. Could you imagine just if you were walking with somebody, you were the disciple, you loved them and everything else. You watch them crucified, you watch them die, you watch them buried. And then you walk and you eat with them again. What, what a clear example of no power over death, right? Where this would make this so much easier to live, right? That's why I think they kind of got, you know, I, I agree they're, they're very much regular men. There isn't something that great about these men God chose in that sense, you know. Definitely, I've heard them called the B apostles way more than the A apostles. But at this point, I think they got an advantage over us, right? Because it's like, you just realize how no power, no power over death is there, you know. In Psalms, it says, in Psalms 34, 8, it says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you saints. There is no, or there is no what to those who fear him. Or there is no want to those who fear him. So, there's no want to those who fear him. The fear of the Lord keeps us safe. The fear of your parents keep you safe. The fear of, if I do this, a wood spoon's coming out. Or the fear is there's going to be punishment. And the fear of the Lord should be healthy in your life. When you're sitting there and you feel this pressure from men, do you fear them or do you fear the Lord? And that's where hypocrisy begins. Is not the concern of God at all anymore. It's the concern of what men think. If you're concerned about what God thinks, it's there. And there's a balance between, you know, going... Because we could come off and go, okay, well, I don't want to be a hypocrite. So I'm just going to be the same person, same sinful person I am everywhere there. So, you know, when I come into church and I cuss at work, I'm going to be cussing here. And that way I'm not a, a, you know, I'm not a hypocrite that way, right? No, you better fear the Lord, right? (laughs) He calls us to be righteous. But I'm not a hypocrite. I mean... And so we sit there and we look at these things and we look at the fear of the Lord and focusing on our eternal life, focusing on God, focusing on what he desires, what's really going on in a situation instead of what men are going on. Putting a show on for others. You know, it, it always amazes me and, and I, I have a hard time. There's... Um, There's situations, and there's not many, because I, 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 I avoid them, of getting in a situation. You ever go to one of these um, fundraiser things, galas, whatever you want to call fundraiser things? Why are people there? Well, the people put it on to get people there that are, have the fear of man so they can look good, right? You're there because you want to be seen a certain way by other people you know they're going to get invited. The first question when you put one of these award banquets on, or, or not award banquet, but fundraiser thing, is who's going? What kind of people are going to this thing? Who's going to be there? Well, you know, the who-who in the area, you know, the important people, the people with money. And then they go there, and it's not just who's there. Well, I want to be there. I want to be accounted among them. And then I want to make sure everybody sees how much I'm giving or how much I care or how much I, you know... You know, some, some people, you know, there's ministries, they have to, I just cannot get into it. It, those things, it drives me nuts. It's like, you just, you seriously have a whole bunch of hypocrites and a whole bunch of men, their only concern is, you know, not to say all of them, you know, I really pray that some people are there and they're hearing about whatever the Lord's doing and they're really praying about it, you know, but most people that are giving and praying about what God wants to do don't want to be seen of men doing it. You know, and so it's amazing to see these things, but that's our culture, and that's what we look at and we live at. And um, you know, it's one of those things just to question your life: Is there things you're doing for other people, the concern of the Lord? And this is the balance here too, because the Bible says, "Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul." Right? So, should I not consider other people at all? You know, I'm just gonna. Focus on me and the Lord. You know, I'm just going to love him only. Okay, if I showed up unshowered for a couple weeks, 
I'm obviously not caring about anybody in this room. But the Bible says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. So be concerned about the Lord, and the Lord wants you to be loving towards those around you. Okay? Simple example. Okay? I normally would just shave my head. When I wanted a haircut, I'd just shave it down. It's quick. It's done. Heidi doesn't like it. She says I kind of look mean and everything else. And, you know, since I've been here and stuff, there's some people that would bother if I suddenly shaved my head and stuff, you know? Little things. I love some of you women in here. Since Heidi's out sick, at least four of you have adjusted my collar. Okay? Four of you have adjusted my collar this morning. I must have messed it up a couple times. And I have no problem with that. I could say, you know, I don't care about man and put it sideways. But because I'm going to be loving some of you, because you guys have that lovingly motherly thing and you've dressed your husband, so I'm glad I'm not the only husband that gets dressed in here, it would drive you nuts if my collar was up sideways. You would not hear a single thing in this message. That's all you could focus on and it'd be totally unloving. I have no problem making sure my collar is straight, not because I'm concerned about you and what your approval of me is or if you think, you know, I look good or I match color-wise. I just don't want to be a distraction because it's going to be loving towards God. So there's, there's the balance. The whole purpose of me making sure you guys, allowing you guys to adjust my collar and straightening it is so that I'm not a distraction so you can hear it. Yeah. So... Hey, Janine even ratted herself at. She said she was standing in line and the guy's tag was up, some stranger, and she tucks it in, you know? <laughs> that's bold, right? Nowadays, that's even more bold. But no, I love her, and that's, that's, you know, but it was one of those things of, hey, I want to be loving, I want to be presentable, I want to be in a way to where I'm not distracting because I want you guys to hear the God. And in the same way of going, okay, at work, well, you know, we need to just be focused on God. So I'm going to sit there all the time, and all I'm going to talk about, I'm not going to be any caring towards you at all. You're talking about sports. Well, you know, that's kind of a waste of time. It's totally pointless. You know, some of you guys are mad at me. But no, I mean, and I'm just, we just got to talk about spiritual things. You know, the Bible says speak in spiritual hymns and songs. So, when, you know, my boss asked me, how was your weekend? Well, I went to church and I did this. And here, let me read the passage I read. And no. Oh, well, I went to church, I did this, I had some time. There's a a way to be loving and caring to people and not unbiblical or concerned about the outcome of it. You know, and and having a fear of them to not be dishonest, but at the same way, what is the most loving thing to do to that person? Sometimes the loving thing to do is sit down and listen to that person. And they might tell you about their whole weekend of debauchery, and you sit there and go, that's nice. What did you do this weekend? Oh, I went to church. <laughs> I mean, I'm like, ah. You know, I, I get a kick out of it because, you know, I've been working with like certain general contractors for years and, and their guys are out there and I run into their guys and we've spent, you know, over in, in Pebble Beach working on a roof and around them quite a bit, you know, and, and one day they're sitting there and, um, you know, their, their boss comes by and as they're talking and he's explaining all these problems he's having and I'm just going, yeah, you know, well, this is what, you know, this is, you know, kind of this is better and that and, you know, God, the Bible says this and so maybe that would help you in that situation and he's kind of sitting there and he, you know, starts talking again and cussing and everything and I'm listening and his boss stops and goes, don't you know Tim's a pastor? Oh, I'm sorry. And then the guy doesn't talk to me anymore. He's scared to say every time he talks because he says this so much as an apology. Oh, I'm sorry. Man, you let that slip out. But you know, it's like he's more worried about me than God, obviously, right? But it's like it's suddenly funny how people will act. But for me to sit there and go, oh, I don't cuss and I don't do this, and I, you know, that's all legalism, isn't it? That's not a relationship with God where God comes to us how we are. We're going to take communion later. And the order of communion is important. The bread. Why do we take the bread? That's becoming, that was symbolism. Eating the same food as somebody else was his body broken for us. That's being one with him. And the blood is the cleansing, the forgiveness of sin. So wait, you're telling me God wants to be part of me before my sin is forgiven? Wow, what an amazing thing. And so we look at that and... We see these things and to be loving and realize, yeah, they're people and having God's heart for the people. You know what I mean? You think of how could Paul, as he's there and he's preaching and he has this crowd come and beating him up, 
uh, of Hebrews, and, and they lift him up, right? The Roman soldiers come to rescue him. They literally have to put him over their head to make it out of there fully armed so they don't beat this guy who's already beaten to a pulp. I mean, imagine a crowd, and you're trying to find the center of the crowd of who they're beating up. And you get the guy, you get him out, and, and as they get him up to the steps, Paul goes, hey, hey, can I say something to him? Thinking the Roman general goes, yeah, he, maybe it was misunderstanding. He's going to correct it. He's going to calm down this mob. And they put Paul down. He turns around in Hebrew and he starts preaching the gospel to him, right? Makes it all worse. But you know what I mean? It's like, whoa, whoa there's no fear. What was his concern? Man, who, who, who gave me that right hook? I want to give it back to him. I mean, I can't believe that guy kicked me. No, I mean, you know, we can all be guilty of that. I don't think I, you know, I'd have to be full of the Holy Spirit, you know. Maybe I need to pray more before you go all her airsoft. Man, when somebody's like, especially these guys, little kids, if they don't call their shots, that's fine. Man, but when you're, when you, when you have your team gear on and you shoot me, you, you don't call your shot, I get, hmm, no. You know, no gracious at all. I mean, but here, Paul gets beat up. He's there. He's full of Holy Spirit, Sharon. It's awesome to see those things. And so, verse, where are we at here? Verse 7. Oh, verse 6. Are not the five sparrows sold for two copper coins, and not one of them is forgotten before God? But the very hairs of your head are numbered are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are more valuable than many sparrows. So sparrows were a cheap meal. They didn't have much meat on them. You got these little birds that could be bought very cheaply. I don't know what the comparison would be, you know, uh, tacos at Taco Bell or something, you know, or the little 99 cent cheeseburgers or whatever. They were very little cost, but yet God knew the value of them, God even knows those, and how much more valuable are those than you. And it says, you know, the numbers, your hairs are not, are numbered. Not that he's numbered like he's keeping count, per se. Oh, you lost one, we're down one, we're up one, or none of that, you know. Or that, you know, how many migrated from your head to your beard, and, or, you know. I like grave glory goes, yeah, the beach is always getting bigger, you know. And you sit there, but that he actually had numbered, right? So like when you lose one, he's like, oh, that's a number 3,032 fell out. You know, that's number five fell out. You know, he knows you then intimately. It's amazing, though, you know, sometimes Bible scholars, I just, trust me, that some people get there and go, you really think God knows how many hairs are, that he's paying attention? This is like figuratively that he cares. He doesn't actually know. I mean, you really think that God's going to sit there and keep track of how many hairs are on your head? That he's going to waste time like that? And, you know, this is figurative. Really, let's get back to that. Do you think that's a hard thing for God to figure out? Like he's sitting there stressing out with a calculator going, oh, which one's lost? I've got to keep track of that. Where's my file? If he spoke everything into existence... Hello, all this is easy. Of course I think he believes it. I think he knows us that intimately. That intimately where he knows how many hairs you have left on your head or, you know. The average human head has 100,000 to 140,000 hairs on their head. Blondes more than brunettes, brunettes more than redheads. And you lose about 75 hairs a day. And he knows. He has them numbered, each one of them. And he knows you that well, and, and the, this knowledge is a current knowledge. A current knowledge, he knows how many hairs you had, maybe on your head, <laughs> how many less have gotten on there. Some of you women in here might have asked and prayed and going, how many will he have at this age? No, left, but <laughs> you look at that, it is interesting to see that God knows us that well. And how much he values us. And, and it's a fear. When, when you realize that, that he values you that much. So you kind of have this fear and then do not fear. Right? Fear the Lord because he has control over your eternal destiny. But then we have here, he values you so much. Therefore, it says, do not fear, therefore, because you're more value than those. So here, fear the Lord, because he has this power, but yet, the balance of not fearing you, why? Because he values us. Because, you know, if you think of, man, all the things I think, all the areas I blow it, and all the things, 
man, if I was God, I had nothing to do with me. And he goes, no, I value you so much. I value you so much I was willing to come and I died for your sin. God knows you. God knows your hairs. God knows every evil thought you have, every evil intention of your heart. And he still loves you. You go, how can God know me so well? All the evil thoughts and all those things, and my sin, and he still loves me? Well, he doesn't even just know your sin like I know of your sin. He's paid for it. Isn't that a hard thing to grasp? He doesn't even just know your sin. He's paid the price for it. And he still loves us. You know, there should be a good response to that. A right, the right response to that. You know, some of the people go, oh, the right response is, hey, God loves me anyways, I'm going to continue to sin. Can you imagine that? You get home, your 10-year-old took out your car for a drive. Dad gets home and goes, gosh, man, I'm going to have to pay to fix this car. I can't believe you damaged it. Man, I'm, son, I forgive you. I'm going to take care of it. And the son goes, cool, Dad. <laughs> Boom, hit something again. You paying for that one too? I mean, it's not a right response, right? It's like, my 10-year-old crashes a car. They're not driving until they're 35 and I let them out of the basement. No, I mean, <laughs> that's our response, not God's. You look there and you see these things and to know that he has paid for it. You know, one of the hardest things I think I've seen and hardest thing to comprehend is when we fall and we've been in ministry. When you've had this relationship and you fall. You look at Peter who denies Christ three times, right? And as we get in this next section, you know, confess me before men and I'll confess you in heaven before the Father. And, and you see him, but yet he fell. He, he struggled in that area. There was a time. And as believers, when you fall and you realize that God knows you, but he doesn't even just know you now. He knows what you're going to do in the future. He knows the sin you're going to do in the future and pay for it. You know, I, I had a brother, who, a friend who's, who's gone through some stuff and, and just really painful, um, just some choices made and the destruction of sin in his life. And man, Satan is looking to destroy who he can. And he will. If you have an area you are not open and honest with that you're willing to deal with God in, be fearful that Satan's going to come and there's going to be consequences of it. But you can know that even through that, God loves you. I was talking to him going, you, can you remember when God used you so greatly? Yeah. And yet he knew this was going to happen. Now you see, you see no fruit of it. You see this destruction. You see it as horrible. You would do anything to change it. You would rather die than put the people you've put through it. But yet God already saw that coming and still used you beforehand. So there is never a point you can get to where it's like God's love isn't there. You don't ever going to need God, the blood of Christ any more and any less than any other time in your life. He loves you. His love is consistent. It is unchanging. And so, yes, he knows you. He knows your sin. He intimately knows your sin because he's paid for it, but he loves you. Not to say there isn't consequences of our sin, you know. I might, you know, if you crash the car, I'll forgive you, but you will live in the basement. The consequences of sin. So, but you look, in verse 8 it says, Also I say to you, whoever confesses me before men him the Son of Man will also confess before the angels. It's interesting here that Jesus didn't say, deny, deny me in your heart and deny me in your mind and I will deny you in heaven. No, you know, if, if it's actions, right? Before men. Isn't that interesting? It's not, not even a hard action. How many people, how many of these guys, these Pharisees, confess God openly? Right? But, it, you know, many times we sit there and go, wow, whoever, even in your own public life, denies me, right, before men, I'm, I'm going to, if you confess me before men, I'm going to confess you in heaven. And it's, it's just interesting that, you know, you, you look at that, and you look at even this outward reaction, right? This outward heart. And then he'll get even into the heart of these things in a minute. But it's, what amazes me in this scripture is not that men, that we confess him before men. Because 
who knows the motive of your heart, right? Somebody's heart. But what's amazing is that God's willing to confess us before angels. Yeah, he's mine. You, you ever have one of your kids in a sport, and your kid's not good at that sport? And you're sitting there, and the parents are on the bench. are like, oh, which one's yours? Oh, I just was walking by and wanted to see what was going on. No, no see that one out there? Yes, the, the, yes, the one playing in the dirt. Yeah the, yeah, the one totally, the one that the ball just rolled past, that he's still not getting it. That's mine. I mean, right? The, the one that's totally, in the, you know, the one that just, just took the football and ran it the other way, right? yeah, that's my boy. No, I mean, you look at that, right? If I was God, I wouldn't go, yeah, see that guy? I know him. They're like, yeah. They didn't have a choice. I died for the whole world. He was in the list. It was take them all or couldn't leave one out. So, I mean, isn't that amazing that he's willing to confess us? Like, okay, I have no problem confessing him. Anybody, you know, okay, we got a totally loving, awesome God. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't know if I want to confess that. Really? But that he's willing to confess us and say, yeah, he's mine. They're mine. You notice here it says, whoever's willing to confess. Define confess. Isn't that a verbal action? It doesn't say, who's ever willing to do good works in my name, obey the law, do the 10 steps, the five-step program, Jenny Craig, or anything else. It says, confess. Simple as that. Confess with his lips. You know, we're not saved by works. You have all these Pharisees, all this thing, all the show they're putting on to prove and who they are and their acceptance before men, to prove their acceptance before God. And you can't help to think you have two sinners on a cross and Jesus is sitting there. And the one guy, all he can do is what? Just, you are the Savior. Confesses with his mouth. And Jesus says, today I'll see you in paradise. It didn't rain. He didn't even get baptized. Had no chance for any good works. He's dying for his sin Next to Christ, all he could do was confess it. And that day he saw Christ in paradise. Verse 9, it says, But he who denies me before men will deny me, or I'll deny before the angels of God. Man, talk about a warning. Denying me. But actually that isn't the sin that's unforgivable, right? Denying it, right? Peter denied him three times. And this, you know, when it says denying, that word is in the imperative or imperfect sense means denying and continuing to deny, like an unending denying. So you're denying him and you're not stopping. There's no end in sight. Same thing with this word blasphemy in here in verse 10. It says, and anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But to him who blasphemes, again, is doing it and continues to do it without a stop, Against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. The Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit who? The Holy Spirit only testifies of Jesus. Who Jesus is. I, I like the way um, you said, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. Not because it is a sin too big for God to forgive, but because it is an attitude of the heart that cares nothing for God's forgiveness. It never has forgiveness because it never wants God's forgiveness. It might want forgiveness, but only on its own terms, never God's way. You know, you might want forgiveness in those things, but there's only one way. That's through Jesus, through the cross, through God's plan. You cannot get there on your own. No matter how religious you are, no matter what front you put on, there is only one way to be forgiven and have that relationship with God. And it's not that that sin is not forgivable, not that that can't change. Think of Saul of Tarsus. You know, we were talking earlier, it's very possible that dinner party, and at this point, Saul of Tarsus is there. Okay? Was he a blasphemer? Yeah. He caused Christians to blaspheme and put them to death. Right? And here he becomes Paul. Why? Because he stopped. God confronted him, changed. He stopped blaspheming God. He was forgiven. And I wonder if the first part of that verse right there was just for him and that group. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. You can speak a word against it. You can be against me. You can be here, hate me, and want to put me to death right now. 
But if you continue this for the rest of your life and you continue to harden your heart and you go out that way, there is no hope for you. That's the only thing that is unforgivable. In all of Scripture, there is only one thing that is unforgivable. It's that. It's not based on our performance. It's all that free gift. Now, as a believer, okay, you know, you think of things and how we have blaspheming, you know, people go, oh no, did I blow it? Did I blaspheme? It's that continual thing. As a believer, um, I mean, there's a scripture that says, let no proceed, uh, corrupt word proceed from your mouth, but which is good and necessary for edification, that it may impart grace to the hearer. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed in the day of redemption. So yeah, you can go out and Grieve the Holy Spirit. But if you're worried about the Holy Spirit, if you're sitting here and you're worried if, God, man, have I blasphemed the Holy Spirit? I, you know, I was at work at that one time and that guy asked me and I just totally blew it. I didn't confess Christ. Oh, no, I'm going to hell and I'm blaspheming. No, if you're worried, obviously you haven't blasphemed it because the Holy Spirit's working on you right now, right? You're not denying the work of the Holy Spirit when you're worried about him. Kind of simple, you know. Some will say that. Some will say, hey, if you're not out actively sharing the gospel and, and, and doing works, right? If you're not going door to door with your other elder on a bicycle, you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. It's thought. That's not what it's talking about. We can grieve the Holy Spirit, and it's definitely not a situation you want to be in because you should fear God, and he's a loving father, and his wood spoon is big. There's a cost to sin, but he's also very loving and gracious. Verse 11, now when they bring to you, bring you into the synagogue and the magistrates and the authorities, do not worry about what you should answer or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. You know, there's going to be times where you're going to be brought into a situation for your belief. And it says people of authority. Authorities, right? Your boss can be authority. You're getting brought in before being a Christian because you have a certain point of view. Don't sit there and stress about it. Think about, oh yeah, Peter was sleeping. Angels had to wake him up. You know, there's situations where it comes up. I was at work, this was said, and now they want to call me in the office because I had my Bible out at work or whatever. Just trust the Holy Spirit. You know what I mean? God gives you authority. The only way Paul was getting carried through a crowd on somebody's shoulder after being beat up and he gets up and starts preaching, you know, gets stoned, thrown out of a city, comes back in. I mean, that's not him. That's the Holy Spirit. God will give you in that hour what to say. How many times do you think Paul was in jail? When you look at him in jail, he maybe has like one or two words where it's like, I didn't do that. And then it's all the gospel, right? Not a very good thing. But when you look at the laws and you look at authority and you look at the word of God and the laws, and here you have these Pharisees and scribes that were there to represent the law. You go, well, isn't the law good? Shouldn't we obey the law? Shouldn't that take thing? Now, a simple question. When you have a law, is it sufficient? Is there a law that you could write out that would be sufficient? Murder, right? That should be pretty cut forward, right? Murder should be wrong, right? In all cases, is murder bad? What if they're trying to kill you first? What if, right? There's a whole slew of things that suddenly that law has to be what? Interpreted. Well, who, has, who interprets that law? Who makes a judgment call on that? I mean, we, we, you can try to write a law. You could write a book, you know, this thick on one law, and it's going to be unjust to somebody. That's why we have a judge, Right? And that judge gets to decide which law is there and, and where that falls. So yes, we have love the Word of God. We can believe in the Word of God. We can trust the Word of God. It is all Scripture is you know, beneficial, constructive, good for doctrine. But ultimately, who's going to judge? And if you have that relationship with the judge and you're bringing it before him, he's the one to judge. Right? The Bible says, judge not lest you be judged. What does that mean? It doesn't mean we don't have a standard. It means we maybe bring up the standard and say, hey, go here. Because if that was the case, right, the Bible says obey the law of the land. Okay? Well, if you're a police officer and you have to give somebody tickets, are you judging not lest you be judged? I mean, no, you just better make sure you're not speeding on the way home. Right? (laughs) 
But at the same time, many times you see somebody come up and they're this and this and they're breaking the law. And God, I can't believe that person. I'm just going to. And God says, yeah, what about you? The only reason I showed you that person because I wanted to deal with you on it. <laughs> you know, think of King David, right? I can't believe this guy. This guy took this guy's only lamb and did this and this and this. And the prophet turns around and goes, dude, you're that guy. And it wasn't a sheep. Right? And many times God will bring that word back out to you and look at it. And that's where, so we look at the law. The law is good, but it is subject to the judge. The judge is the one that makes the final call. Christ is that judge. Many times you'll see legalism um, come in and, and you look at this. Hypocrisy ends up becoming legalism in the church every time. When you, 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 you get legalist, then you get hypocrisy. Why? Because you cannot live up to the standard of the law. We could not live up to the standard of the Old Testament. What came in to replace the Old Testament was God's grace. Why? So we can't go from the Old Testament law and now start applying a New Testament law and standards of what you should do and do not, and then even add our traditions on it, you know, you know no smoking, no drinking, or you know, being around girls that do, or whatever the, some of the older saints. You can't do that. It becomes legalism. It becomes wrong. It becomes works. And many times, the whole thing with legalism is, instead of me having to go and have a relationship with Christ and listen and speak into him, just give me the checkoff list so I can get my list done and go down the way, and I can prove how good I am, Lord. It's saying, hey, God, your blood is not good enough. It's not good enough. I just want to prove that I'm good enough. You're not good enough. You're never going to be good enough. That's why he was good enough for us. That's why the Old Testament had to pass away. There was none that were going to fall under that. You realize, you look at the first century church, right? You had all these emperors of Rome, right? And the persecution, all these Christians dying. Horrible, right? Do you know what was worse than that? What was more destructive than that? There was this legalistic group after that called the Catholic Church, and they put more Christ, grace, professing Christians to death than the Roman emperors ever did. The most destructive thing to Bible relationship-believing Christians has been legalism in the name of Christ. In our lives, make sure... The easiest way to guard against legalism is opening your Bible, daily devotion, going, God, change me. Change me. How does this apply to me? Not, God, I want to study your word. How does this apply to everybody else around me? My wife, my kid. No. How does this apply to me? How do I have to change? How do I love my wife and kids better? How do I love my boss better? Not, give me a sword so I can go out and I'm really going to get my boss for this or that or this. No. God, change me. That's the best way to deal with legalism. God, I want this relationship with you. You change me. Show me how to love these people. And if we're to share anything is, you know what? I'm a sinner. I messed up and I blow it and I don't always make the law, but God loves me. He's willing to work through that. Let me show you the scripture and let me show you how God's grace works. We are under the law of grace. Not the law in that sense. And he is the judge. He will be the judge in the end. You know, you have the, the scripture that talks about wheat and tares, you know, in the church. That there's, you know, a, there's a guy farming and, and um, the tares are out there and, you know, they, somebody throws weed seeds in there. And they're all sprouting up. And the workers in the field come and go, hey, we got all these, these weeds within the, the grain. What do we do? How do we solve it? And he goes, you know, we'll go out there, we'll rip them out. And they go, no, leave them alone. Leave them alone. Leave the tares alone. When the harvest comes in, the people that harvest, that's when it will get sorted out. In the church, there are going to be hypocrites, fakers in the church. And it's not our job to root them out. I don't want your list after service of who you feel. So <laughs> hey, we got, you know, this guy I just don't know about. It's not nice to talk about me that way anyways. No. No. <laughs> Right? But that's up to God and the Holy Spirit. If the worship team would come forward as I pray, we're going to take communion this morning. Dear God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for who you are and that we get to know who you are and that you claim us as yours. That you're willing to admit that us, me, this group of misfits, Father, and just me, Father, that you're willing to admit that you know me, that you love me, 
and you're still willing to admit that even though you know every thought I have, every sin I have committed and will commit, and you don't not just willing to admit who I am, but you still love me, Father. What an awesome and amazing thing. Thank you for your word. Amen.